0: Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast that gives women a chance to get honest and open about what it's really like surviving and thriving in what often feels like a male dominated world. All of my guests have been handpicked from the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics, or STEM, where inclusivity and diversity can be a real issue. I know this only too well, having been a mechanical engineer myself for a number of years. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, now a television broadcaster. I've worked on and reported on some cutting-edge technology and innovation over the years, and through my TV work, I've met some incredibly inspiring women from a diverse range of STEM fields. These women are true trailblazers, and I've often felt so empowered myself by learning what they're like as real people, usually when the TV cameras have been turned off and they're just being themselves. Each week on Silence, one of these women shares her unique experiences and truth without the usual pressure and stress of having to promote her accomplishments or uphold her impressive reputation. How? Because all of my guests are deliberately kept anonymous and disguised to ensure that we as listeners are not distracted or maybe even intimidated by all the usual kinds of societal labels and trophies. The women of STEM on the show have amazingly impressive CVs, but most importantly, they're human just like the rest of us, and I want to share the inspiration and wisdom that I've gathered from them with you. It's my hope that you really relate to what we chat about today. If so, do subscribe to Silence and maybe even rate and review the show. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of evolutionary biology. Hi. Hello. How are you? I am good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I am so thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: That's quite all right. It's a fascinating concept of anonymising a podcast. I love
0: it. What did you first think when you heard that it wasn't going to reveal your identity?
1: Um, I never thought that's a great idea. Why has no one done that before? Because it is one of those things where there's so many issues that you just don't want tied to you like you just don't want to put the cat among the pigeons right so I thought hey I, I can see why people would be much more open which is exactly what you want from a podcast
0: it was actually an evolutionary biologist that inspired me on the anonymity front because um we were having this amazing conversation um one time at this gathering of um scientists from various different parts of STEM and um, the conversation got really personal and I was like you know what this conversation would really inspire other women we need to get this on camera and she absolutely refused she was like there's no way I'm saying any of this in the public domain and it kind of got me thinking that I mean I can totally understand yeah, yeah I mean we've been through a lot haven't we I mean what's it been like for you sort of going through your academic career?
1: I mean it's been it's had its good sides and its bad sides I wouldn't say that I've been kind of subject to some of the worst stuff that women in science get Uh, I'd say that the issues I've had with academia come from academia itself and not from malicious actors within the field it's not that people have been nasty it's just like a more general suitability to the work and that kind of thing Mm. um but so much of academia is based on reputation yeah and it's, it's all about who you know and even within like publishing supposedly you want to anonymize who the reviewers are who the authors are but often the field is so small that you can't anonymise or it becomes very obvious from, oh, following on from my previous paper in yeah. so-and-so, yeah. uh, you can't anonymise it. And so that's why I think it's so interesting that reputation comes up because reputation is such an important part of academia.
0: Mm. you just got to be damn good at what you do, don't you, to get anywhere.
1: Yeah, and known for it as well.
0: Yeah, So take me right back to the beginning, like as a child, did you know Mm -hmm. that this is what you were going to end up studying?
1: I think so, yeah. I was always interested in animals, interested in animal behaviour. I would spend most of my time in the garden. I would chase after poor, unsuspecting animals and watch a lot of um, natural history documentaries and that side of things. And for some reason, chemistry and physics just never really had that same draw to me as animal behavior. And then as I went through the schooling system, it's odd because it's like the school system teaches biology as a stream to get into medicine. And the biology course is very much human anatomy and that's it. There, I think there might have been one or two lessons on evolution and adaptation in that sense, but next to nothing on animal behavior. And it's all, can you name this part of the body? Can you memorize this cellular pathway? And to me, that's like the really dull bit of biology it's like I don't want to name and memorize, I want to watch animals doing fun things. And so it was when I got to university that I was able to specialise and learn more about not only animal behaviour, but how much theory and maths there is uh, Mm. and has been researched into predicting it and explaining it. And that's what I really liked, because I always really enjoyed maths as well. To to have a mathematical slant to what is this weird nebulous and very variable thing like behaviour that ought to be really hard to describe. That was really interesting to me.
0: My gosh, I've never ever thought about it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I was never interested in biology because it was so um there were such long, complicated names for everything. Yeah. And you're right, there there was a lot of memorisation required. And I think that's what really turned me off, because I've got a memory of a goldfish. Um, but I can understand things. I think that I
1: continue doing biology despite of the school curriculum instead of because of it um like sciences were always some of my favorite subjects but it it, like you really unless you want to study humans there isn't a huge amount of value in being able to name human anatomy whereas there's a huge amount of value in knowing how you would go about studying a living organism because the thing that separates biology from the other sciences is just how messy <laughs> it is oh my goodness you, like you see, physicists and chemists having things in neat little boxes and they see a tiny amount of variation and they're like hmm, that's i'm not sure we can explain anything or uh, another okay. academic friend it's of mine so doesn't yeah. do statistics because she's like well either this chemical pathway works or it doesn't work there's no kind of statistics to it whereas biology everything is so messy and there are no neat answers and so everything you don't know if it's random if it's an adaptation if it's individual variation if it's just variation based on the day that it happens to be there's so many confounding factors that you can't control that we spend our entire lives trying to make sense of a system that is so complex and variable that just being able to name things and know how what other people have found isn't, I don't think, particularly helpful compared to, OK, this is how you study an animal that doesn't want to be studied. Or this is how you test something in a system where you can't actually control all of the variables because it's biology. And in biology, you can't control the variables, that kind of thing.
0: You're making me have this gigantic self-realisation. Because, um, yeah, because, yeah, you know, the the way you describe biology makes me get the kind of anxiety I have towards life because life is so unpredictable mm-hmm. and you can't sort of underline it with one solution and one answer. And the realisation yeah. is that, you know, biology is is messy like life. Um, and I think it that's why life. I sort of, that's why I retreated into maths and physics and, you know, the rules of engineering because it just is so orderly.
1: Yeah, that that is the thing that I loved about maths was that there was a right answer and there was a wrong answer, and you knew when you were done. Yeah, that's never the case in biology. So, how
0: did you cope with not having those like binary answers in biology? Did it get you as you got higher up?
1: Um, no, because the higher up you go, the more specific you're looking at things. The the because research is so incremental you're looking at these tiny little changes yeah and so you really you're looking at a really small effect and trying to work out is that significant or mm-hmm. is that just variation yeah um and so so part of evolutionary theory is saying we've got these overall reasons why we think that some animals well all living things but for me some animals should behave like this mm. and even dis- despite all of the huge amount of variation between species. So these animals, um, like if I was to take an example, if we're looking at the wasp and bees and the ants, these animals all behave nicely to each other because of a certain factor of how they live their lives, their ecologies, the sort of environment that they're in, the sort of interactions that they have. We can take that. And we can apply the exact same logic, like algorithmic logic almost, to something completely different. I mean, we could apply that to plants and say, oh, well, that partly explains then why we see this behavior in plants. Um, And it's that kind of being able to almost universally apply some common ideas and some common Ways of thinking or logic or patterns, mm. like bringing order to something that is so disordered, yeah, is really important to me. And it's it's because it's not predictable. Like, there's, if if your entire life was predictable and you knew exactly how everything was going to end up, I mean, yeah, you wouldn't have the same anxieties you have now. But also, my <laughs> god, that would be so boring. <laughs> yeah, if you, if it you would. want to have that kind of uncertainty. Um, and for me, I found physics bizarre because in biology, you try and find the simplest answer. It's mm. Like, parsimony is so important in biology, is that if there is a simple way of explaining it, chances are that's the thing. And you've got to have a very good reason to go against that. I swear in other subjects like physics, it's like, okay, this would make sense. But in fact, it's the complete opposite. And yeah. You can't, it gets to a level where you just, can't conceptualize it yeah
0: you've got so many assumptions like, uh, you know if yeah, our this, then that, not and... allowed,
1: yeah our brains don't work at like the quantum level i remember asking in school but like what is a force like what what sort of thing is it is it because it's not matter but but like, I know that it does all these other things and it interacts with things and like it's involved in acceleration or whatever. What is it? And they're just like, yeah, that's you're never going to get your head around that. Yeah. And whereas in biology, it's hugely complex, but still at a level where you can understand it. It's just a matter of thinking about it.
0: So just studying what you studied um, profoundly affect the way you see the world then. I'm assuming it did I'm not sure it did I mean I say this um I think my
1: way of seeing the world is probably why I like
0: biology Mm. um
1: so it didn't drive you insane or anything
0: then kind of no you you studied um, to quite a well to an exceptionally high level
1: so there are some famous figures in our field who committed suicide actually because of the research that they were studying. Um, when you start studying behavior, you can't help but apply it in human terms. And we know that we shouldn't, especially if you're not studying human behavior. But just the way of thinking about it was so good. Like we have evolved to think about human behaviors. So often we will pose things in terms of, oh he did this and she did this and they did this and there was a conflict or whatever.
0: And because that's what lizards do.
1: Yeah. And because that's an easier way of thinking about things because we, we're really Mm. understanding interpersonal relationships. So if we want to understand inter animal relationships, it's so much easier to frame it in a framework that we already know. And so a lot of people that have studied animal behavior have had some quite interesting relationships with the humans in their lives. Um, but I do not think I've experienced <laughs> it so much in that sense. Um, In the day-to-day life, it's mostly that I just get ridiculously distracted by animal behavior. But I suppose that's what got me into biology rather than because of studying biology. Like I can be having a conversation with someone in a park and then I'll just stop talking because there's a blackbird doing an interesting display on a tree nearby. And it's it's, (laughs) it's just that interest and being able to see the world with a higher level of understanding, being able to see things. That's a mating display. Oh, that's a sign of aggression. Oh, I wonder if this animal is performing optimal foraging theory because of the way that they're (laughs) flipping backwards and forwards. Um, Oh, it's interesting that the timing how is the timing of the seasons going to affect this certain behaviour? Oh, this animal is going to get caught out by this sudden change in weather. It's, it's that asking questions and seeing like yeah. a different layer, almost like in The Matrix where Neo suddenly starts seeing everything in all those green numbers. It's like you can take things at face value, but then you can also think that everything itself is part of this bigger picture.
0: Yeah, and that's actually one of the big plus points for studying STEM in the first place because it really allows you to have this sharpened focused lens on the world as a result of learning the the laws that we've discovered
1: so far. Totally yeah it must be like I imagine like learning a language it just opens up this other world but the best thing is with the sciences is that it's always all around you you don't have to travel to a different country to experience it.
0: And there's always more to discover. Oh, yes. You know, so so your curiosity that you had when you were a kid that probably distracted you when you were, like, five mm. is probably a similar kind of curiosity that distracts you at this age.
1: Totally. Um, I will go to um, nature reserves and places like that, and you will see the activities that they put on for all the little kids. I'm like, but I want to go. That still sounds fun. And it is. <laughs> it's that that just pure curiosity and just taking pleasure in understanding more about something
0: Mm. so you clearly had you know the the sort of evolutionary biology bug from from young Mm -hmm. but what was it like actually sort of navigating through your work like did you sail through or like what was school life like
1: school life um i was always top of the class i always found school fun and easy i luckily went to a school where so you'd always get the groups of people you'd have like the sporty kids you'd have the drama kids the music kids um yeah the so called popular kids and then there'd always be the kind of geeky kids as well but each one at our school was respected Like I, people respected the fact that I was top of the class and I would get a certain level of, I suppose, like cred for that. And it wasn't, it wasn't denigrated in any way. People were like, oh my God, you did so well on that. Oh, congratulations. Um, Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. And so I never felt bad about being smart or being interested in it um it was yeah It was just one of those things like oh that's great for you that that's really good and everyone kind of had their own talent. so it wasn't
0: competitive
1: oh i mean we were competitive but in a very friendly way so like there would be a bunch of us that would always get quite similar grades and you'd always want to know exactly how the other person did but yeah not in a way of putting the other person down um so i mm. yeah i really enjoyed school um I had a good bunch of teachers and yeah, just com- I didn't realise how unusual of an experience that was until I went to university and started talking to my other friends who had been not even necessarily bullied, but just ostracised for, oh, they're the nerdy, quiet one. We're not going to talk to them. I think it helped that my school was a bit smaller as well. So we all had to get on with each other.
0: Did you say you went to an all-girl school?
1: Yes, Um. so I went to an all-girls school, so it meant that there was none of the kind of, oh, the boys were going to do this. It was challenging mostly in the sense of I went to an elite university, and so I was no longer top of the class. Uh, Everybody there had been top of their respective classes, and suddenly from going from... Where you'd be a little bit disappointed if you got less than ninety five percent on a test. Um, like you're like, oh, I, I should have got at least ninety seven, ninety eight percent on a test. To university, where a first in is like the highest possible category. It's like an A star grade. That is at seventy percent. So you're doing phenomenally well if you can get seventy percent on something, and. And most of the time, you'd be like, hey, I got 60%. I did really well. That was just a huge shock. Um, It meant that before, it's almost like your identity is defined by being good at stuff and having it coming easy. And you never had to work out how to learn or work out how to study because it's, you you just did it you didn't have to try and it was fine and so for the first time I was trying to work out well what is my best learning style at what time do I write best how am I going to cope with this vastly greater quantity of information and process it all because for the first time in my life I couldn't do everything I couldn't get the perfect score that physically was an impossibility and so having to prioritize things that was a big shock for me certainly in my first year. Um before I started at university, um I'd say that um it was failure, criticism, and humiliation were the three things that I hated the most, and to me, they were one and the same thing, like if you failed, then you were criticized, and um you'd be. Humiliated for that, and I did not know how to deal with that. Yeah. And yeah, it was just a big no at all. And then, of course, coming to university, you're having to fail. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But in a much different way. So, yeah, first year of university was the first time I had to deal with failure. And failure not necessarily meaning criticism and humiliation because before it was like oh my goodness you've got i got more than you on that test oh my god i can't believe i Mm. did better than you on that test oh isn't it that's that's kind of the curse of being the top kid is that everyone compares yourself to you and mine's parent would always want to know what i had got in a test because then that Mm. represented the maximum number that someone could get in the test And so marks are no longer out of 100. Marks are out of however much I got in that test. And so then to be in a university environment where you can fail, you can do badly on something, one, people don't compare yourself to you about it. Like, it's not pointed out of you being bad as much as you did something that wasn't of good quality. Um, And, yeah, just it just being so much more a part of life. Like it's a thing that happens and you can't escape it. Whereas previously I would try so hard to avoid it. And it was only at university where I was put into a position where you can't avoid failure. You better learn some strategies to deal
0: with it. Oh, okay. Um. So what did you learn? Um. So I had to learn not to tie my identity
1: to my success, uh, which is something I'm still working on, I suppose. Um, And just not taking every criticism so personally that if someone says, Oh, Hmm. you didn't do so well on this aspect or that aspect, they're not saying they don't like you anymore, they're not saying that they think you'll never be able to do it or that you're incapable of doing it, they're just saying what the words like there's no more meaning behind the words that they're saying if they're saying you didn't do this part well they mean you didn't do this part well not you're bad you're terrible nothing more than that yeah i like you anymore or i have any less respect for you as a person um and that's like a lot of getting used to yeah
0: i mean it it sounds like an incredibly valuable and fundamental thing to learn but my god that must have been hard at the time
1: yes um that was so first year of university was one no first year of phd actually was one of the first times i got imposter syndrome because again um transitioning from being an undergrad to being a graduate you again get that stepping up and instead of being tested all the time you're now thrown into a research environment and Research is failure. Like if you're not failing, you're not doing research. And so again, it's being thrown into that environment where you have if at undergrad, like if at school you would fail one percent of the time, then undergrad you might fail fifteen percent of the time. Whereas in academia, like research itself, you might be failing sixty percent of the the majority of the time you are struggling. But that's totally normal. That's not like a bad thing it's not that you're bad at academia that's just the process um it's just those Mm. having to come to terms with okay this is going badly but that doesn't mean that I'm doing a bad job per se
0: Mm. so what are you like with failure now that you've gone through an undergrad you know a PhD
1: better than I was before um certainly it's it's still hard um I still do tie a lot of self-worth to my ability and so if I'm unable to do something I get incredibly frustrated I know there are some people that enjoy the process of being bad at something and so like they really enjoy picking up a new instrument or taking up a new sport or language and they enjoy that friction that you get at the start where you're really bad but you see the biggest mm-hmm. gains in progress i really don't like that i really struggle to get few. i really struggle to get through the first few weeks or months until you get to that point where you're vaguely proficient once i'm vaguely proficient i'm fine i can then at, at yeah, least you can I kind of say. get to the point where it's like okay at least I can kind of do it and now we're just making improvements but up to that point I just I'm so likely to give up which is not a good trait um but it yeah I don't I don't enjoy not being good at something and so I tend to still spend a lot of my time on the things that I'm good at and that's something I should change a bit more um but it, it it's always going to take time
0: <laughs> yeah I mean I I I would hazard a guess that a lot of the people listening to this podcast um, totally relate to wanting to be involved in things that they're good at, because no one wants to feel like a continuous kind of failure and no one, I doubt many people enjoy just that friction that you talk about. I don't know many people, that's for sure. I don't really know, I don't really know too many people that actually enjoy that kind of friction. Um, there are some, and they're a little bit yeah.
1: masochistic, but there are some, I think <laughs> it's because it's in those early days when you see the biggest improvements, like you can, right. if you're measuring your progress, your progress increases so fast in those early days, and then you get diminishing returns, and so they really enjoy being able to visibly see themselves getting better, and you can see those visible improvements most at the early stages of learning something new. Whereas okay. I find those people weird and like I imagine you say the majority of people enjoy being in my comfort zone. It's called mm, a comfort zone yeah. for a reason because it's comfortable.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you know, when you describe all of that, I it doesn't sound like you're being gender specific in any way. Like I'm sure men um, experience the same discomfort with failure and success as you have but have you ever felt conscious of your gender in your subject
1: yes I think I mean I don't know that of course there will be a lot of men that base their identity on their success I think it's we expect of girls for them to be good at stuff, and I think we maybe it's in the type of things. So maybe in sports, like you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. So there are going to be failures. I feel like as a society, and I like I say, I have absolutely no statistics to back this up, uh, but I'm going to continue talking anyway about it. Uh, is that I think girls aspire to be perfect and yeah. girls want to be the best and are more self-critical of themselves when they're not the best and mm. are less likely to put themselves forward for something if they're not fully at that level that's another thing I've had to teach myself is I, I remember reading somewhere that some pop science stat that Women will apply for a job if they meet one hundred percent of the required criteria, whereas men will do it if they meet sixty percent or something. Whether or not that those numbers are true, I was like, I wouldn't apply for a job if I didn't meet every single one of the required criteria that says required for a reason. Yeah. But other people are obviously doing that. So why shouldn't I go for jobs that I don't think I'm qualified for and let them tell me <laughs> if I'm qualified for it or not? And sometimes it works. Yeah. And it's great. It's basically it's not talking yourself out of the job but waiting for the person hiring to do that instead Um, yeah from that perspective I think that a lot of girls worry about and and worry about criticism in a way that I don't think a lot of my male friends have Um, obviously nobody likes criticism but I feel like as a society um girls are affected more personally by criticism than boys are i don't know if that's because we receive different types of criticism or different amounts but i, I do feel like perfectionism is much more of a female trait um in that mm. sense
0: just out of interest are there other species that have that same characteristic between males and females
1: oh i mean in the traditional way of thinking about things, males tend to go for the riskier behaviors because right. so so male in bi- biological terms is defined by producing the smaller, more numerous sex cell. so sperm, they're tiny, there are lots of them, eggs, mm. they're big, there are a few of them. at the most fundamental level, that's what differentiates a male and a female. Mm -hmm. And because of that split, it's much more all or nothing for males. It could be because it could be that none of their sperm fertilize an egg, or it could be that thousands of their sperm fertilize thousands of eggs. And so you, you tend to see riskier strategies in males of a species than you do in females of a species. Mm-hmm. um and i suppose if you have a higher tolerance for risk you're going to encounter failures more often whereas if you take the safer strategy you're not going to encounter it as often because just your chance of failure is lower if you but you also then end up with lower chances of much greater success the extremes yeah. are narrower i don't know how much that applies to humans because as humans we're such a social species that your success and failure is no longer determined by yourself but there's a whole
0: group involved um it's so fascinating though because if i had your knowledge Mm -hmm. i would constantly be applying what i know to relationships
1: oh i can't be bothered with humans I don't human biology. There's just so much going on, and especially when it comes to the evolutionary side of things, there are so many pitfalls that I try and stay clear of human biology and human adaptation as much as possible. Because as a species, our population has grown so fast, and we have changed our own environments to an extent that very few if any other animals have Mm. it's almost like taking an animal from the wild and studying it in a lab you're never quite sure if what you're seeing are the original adaptations or adaptations (laughs) to the lab itself and with humans we're in we've changed our environment so much relative to evolutionary time you can't quite be sure what's adaptive and what's not and even then beyond that the thing that makes us special as a species is the importance of society and the importance of culture and culture doesn't follow evolutionary rules. It's not tied to your genetics. And so things can be transmitted up generations in a way that would never happen in evolution. Um, And you can learn things in a way much faster and as a species we are shaped so much more by interactions with other individuals that just applying the rules, the lovely neat rules that we have. Finally, as biologists, we've got something neat in in evolutionary theory and then you try to apply it to humans and you're like, oh, that just does not fit. Um, And so I, I just try not to because I think so many people in the public are interested in that and yet there are so many pitfalls that it's mm. an incredibly dangerous area. It's yeah. something where when you talk about it, the public will latch onto it, but also there's an incredibly high chance of you being wrong.
0: Wow.
1: And, and so it's such a... I mean, it's an interesting area, but it's one with a huge risk for um, doing the public a great disservice.
0: mm I mean, ever since I studied mechanical engineering, I have found um, flying on planes and, you know, just traveling generally in machines a very different experience because I'm so. So does that affect the way you relate to others, having studied what you studied? Even if it's just to say I'm not applying what I know to humans. (laughs) Um.
1: I don't think it does, I I think most of the stuff that I have studied in terms of animal behaviour tends to be at a much higher level, like it's a matter of life or death and so much of my human interactions in real life are much more subtle. And so I don't know a lot of the biology behind why would someone choose to be passive-aggressive versus confrontational or spiteful mm. rather than open or those side of things, the things that actually like really change human relationships. Mm. Um, I think if I was like a primatologist, and you're studying those sorts of personal relationships in a much more biological setting, I can only imagine it would change how you view humans. For me, the stuff that I work on is at a much lower cognitive level, and so things are much more innate. I'm looking at much more inbuilt, genetically determined behaviours and so there's less flexibility. And so to assert, like, I don't know, if, if someone tells me that they're ill or has some weird genetic abnormality or biological thing wrong with them, I am fascinated much more than it is polite to be <laughs> so. Um, but in terms of, like, day-to-day relationships, I don't think that I have a better understanding of human relationships as a result of studying the biology of non-humans.
0: Right. So, so what's the plan then? Like, you know, you've done all this studying, Mm -hmm. you've finished your PhD, like, do you have a plan for the rest of your life or is that not your nature?
1: I have a plan. I've had a plan since I was very little. It changes slightly. Um from time to time um but i I don't think that the academic path is the route that I want to go down as as much as I find the topics themselves interesting the day to day process of working with a small group of people on a tiny topic making incremental progress and also i think the side of science that a lot of people don't see is that the further you go in science and academia the less research you're doing you become someone who writes grants to fund other people to do research you go to conferences Mm -hmm. to talk about your research you're having to review other people's papers and writing papers and A decreasing proportion of your time is spent actually answering the fundamental questions that you're interested in, and so that's Mm. not a route that I want to go down. I want more to spend time thinking about just whatever interests me. That's what got me into biology in the first place was seeing a cool behavior and wondering about it, and you become so specialized as an academic that you don't get to do that as much anymore. Um, you you start wondering about the behaviors like, okay, but if I actually want to measure it, I can only measure this tiny incremental change and that doesn't really get to the bottom of the behavior, but you have to do it before you study the rest of it. And it just becomes so much more detailed and I prefer the broader approach. And that's why I'm starting to move into a more outreach position. Because I like taking that broader approach and being able to look at a whole breadth of science and learn one thing one month and a different thing a different month and still have that Mm. level of curiosity and just being like, oh, that interests me. Okay, now I have time to research that a little bit more. And then once I'm bored, I can move on to a new topic. And that's something you can't do in academia. When you're bored on your topic in academia, you've still got to keep working through it. Because if you stopped when you were bored, you'd never get anywhere. You've still got
0: another few years. Yeah. Um, What does a typical evolutionary biologist do once they qualify?
1: So a lot go into evolutionary biology, unsurprisingly. They continue studying animal behavior. Um, So within academia, you have the roots of research and lecturing and things like that. You get a few that go into public policy. Um, There have been, so in the UK, we've had things like the badger cull, which was highly contentious. um, And those kind of those animals, animal welfare and things like that. So there's a whole bunch of people that are Mm -hmm. evolutionary biologists that are studying how farms can... Not necessarily manipulate behavior, but manipulate what we know about behavior to get better results. So, for example, chickens that are in super crowded conditions tend to peck at each other. How do we reduce levels of aggression between individuals in a crowded environment? That's pure behavioral science. Um, You then get a lot that go into science communication, I think, because so many of us started being interested in the world around us and and even being inspired by other science communicators like david attenborough um i can't get through a whole podcast about me without talking about david attenborough um, because of people like that and so we we just want to share that information with the world and unlike quantum physics biology and behaviour is much easier for the public to understand at a certain level. There's much less prerequisite knowledge that you need. Um, Even if you're not going to understand all of the intricacies of I don't know, a fish mating display, you can still get something from it. Whereas if I was trying to teach quantum physics, there's so much that you have to teach before they can even begin to appreciate some of the more complex ideas. That's one of the lovely things about biology is that people see it more in their everyday life. People see pigeons mm. mating on the street people hear about genetic stuff in the news i mean it's both a blessing and a curse because it also means that we have a hell of a lot more ethics surrounding biology than we do any of the other subjects um we Hi. have the ethics of gene editing and disease control and vaccinations mm. and global warming and habitat loss and it interfaces with people's everyday lives much more than say pure chemistry most people could go through their day-to-day lives and not have to worry about how chemistry is going to impact their lives i mean it does impact their lives but not in a way that they have to tangibly think about whereas in biology it often does like am i going to vaccinate my child should i um visit this tourist destination for its wildlife when that would require a plane trip and possibly funding um things that extract from the environment rather than give back to the environment. All of these things we face much more as humans with biology.
0: It's kind of weird that we connect with it purely because the things have faces. I mean, yeah. we're, we're so much more engaged, you know, by cute and cuddly things or scary, weird animals, um, purely because we have faces and so do they often. Yeah,
1: like we, we have... Um, adapted to respond to faces it's why you get that is it pareidolia where you see faces in inanimate objects um it's it's you see, uh you will recognize it i'm not sure if that's the right word for it but if you see a uh, an electrical plug socket that looks like it's right like a smiley face or something yeah or <laughs> a car and you look at the lights and the bumper and it like it's smiling that is yeah. because we are so trained to be interested in faces and so many of the threats to humans evolutionarily were either other humans or other animals like sure we would have disease and famine and cold but the things that really make you sit up and get your attention get that adrenaline response would be other living things and so That's there is so that kind of immediacy to it Yeah, and we can project ourselves onto it. Like you can project yourself onto a polar bear mother looking after a polar bear cub, in a way that you can't project yourself onto. I wonder if this a live electrical wire. Yeah, is going to change how you reinforce concrete or
0: something. Yeah. Gosh, I've never thought about that. Um, You mentioned David Attenborough. Yes. Um, Who inspired you apart from him? Is there anyone else?
1: Ooh, so ooh, uh, <laughs> lots of noises. Dave Rand was the big one growing up in terms of telly. I watched a lot of kids' natural history documentaries as well, and that just general being able to see the real world, the natural world, and have an explanation behind it, you get a lot of that from the telly. So my mum was the one that was determined to get me into... The outdoors and gardening and that side of things and she very much is that because she's outdoors yeah, right? she, she's really into gardening and we grew up in the countryside so it's quite an easy thing to to get involved in since moving to a big city i'm suddenly learning and i just see these tiny little primary school kids getting in taxis or getting up on public transport in order to go to and from school and it's just so foreign to me that you wouldn't grow up surrounded by nature, that instead you'd be grow up surrounded by concrete and tarmac, and that you have to actively seek mm. out nature. Like, you can go to a park, you can go to a canal, to a pond, to a river, to any of those things, but you have to make that effort whereas I grew up in the countryside and so it just was there and you would be stupid to not be interested in it because there's very little else to do in the countryside other than (laughs) the country and the countryside and the wildlife and the animals so I got really interested in I suppose the outdoors and, and that's what ultimately got me into animal behaviour, I suppose, was being outside in the garden. So that's my mum. Uh, my dad's always had quite an inquisitive mind as well, um, and both of them together would kind of, not necessarily in so many words, but inspire a scientific process and encourage inquisitivism. Mm inquivity uh, it encouraged me to be inquiring <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I love words that uh, and yeah just kind of be like oh that's interesting now why don't you test out lots of similar but ever so slightly different versions and see what changes like that kind of thing um so, yeah.
0: right are you an only are you an only child
1: no i'm not i have a sister as well
0: is she in stem Yes, she is. Ah. So it's definitely in the family genes. Uh
1: well, I mean you said that. Neither of my parents are um practicing STEM people. So right. I, I think it's much more nurture than nature.
0: Right. And in terms of family, um, you know, obviously doing a PhD requires a massive investment of time and you've done that time like do you ever think about how um you're gonna fit other aspects of being a woman into your life um,
1: not really i mean if you're asking about like families and relationships and things like that mm. i i'm still so young for a start um <laughs> because I didn't take much time out between school, undergraduate, graduate. Those it means that I've managed to complete a PhD at a, what is a relatively early age, far too early to be worried about not having enough time to have kids. Right. Um, and and personally, I am not particularly keen on kids. Uh, I think that it's it's odd because I've I've never kind of begrudged my work for taking up so much time that I don't I can't do other things having said that since leaving academia I'm realizing how much time I have <laughs> I suddenly watch, started watching so many more films and because before I just never worked out how people would be able to watch like films more mm. than like one a month and now I'm able to watch a few a week and I'm like, what is this? Where has all this time come from? And so, yeah, yeah it's one of those things where so I've never thought, oh, I hate my PhD because it means that I can't have a relationship, for example. But at the same time, I think, oh, well, it if it doesn't matter if I don't have a relationship because, to be honest, I spend so much time on my work anyway that I don't have a huge amount of time for it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's hard to,
0: to work out. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, you're at an age and a stage in your life where it's not um, pressing issue at this stage. Yeah,
1: no one's saying tick tock, your biological clock's ticking to me. Um, yeah. Thank goodness. And, and, yeah, because having a family is really very low down my priority list, Mm. um it's even less of an issue than it would be for someone my age anyway um so yeah I I am both young and so far uninterested in family so both of them are in my favor I suppose
0: yeah so like are you do you reckon you're in like some kind of post-doc kind of recalibration because that's what happened to me as soon as I finished my PhD I was like what am i going to do with all this spare life i've got left you know
1: yeah oh my God. i have had such a culture shock um trying to cope with changing jobs changing house just everything in my lifestyle has changed like how long did your recalibration take
0: i'm still in it <laughs> no um definitely like a year or two because i mean i i took a major career change i went really from left brain to right brain um because what i do yeah. now is so much more creative um but that took like a major sort of like personality overhaul because you know friends say to me today like i can't imagine you being a total geek and you know because what i do is so extroverted but i mm-hmm. really was a complete introvert And I think I needed to be to get through academia, because if I had been distracted by social norms, um, I think I would have uh, never got through it.
1: I I don't think I have so far experienced a kind of personality shift in that way. Mm um but it's it's a very I, I'm, I'm not sure as well how much you'd get it just from changing from any career yeah. to a different career and how much of it is specific to changing from an academic career yeah. but it is academia is a weird career you set your own goals you're left to it you're facing the struggles um there's a lot of independence there's a lot of uncertainty um but also you set your own goals. You decide what it is that you're doing and you have your own kind of internal measure of success. Whereas in most other careers, you have other people asking you for deadlines and you have to meet them and there are external measures of success that you are required to meet. And it's it all just takes a bit of getting used to, I think. Um, and having been in... The academic environment for nearly a decade. To then change to anything else would be difficult. Yeah. Uh, let alone changing so many things at once. Um, changing who I'm around, changing where I am, changing what I'm doing. It, it's a lot to take in in one go, and I have to keep reminding myself again, like what we were talking about with failure earlier, to take it easy. That I'm not going to be able to be perfect at all the things in one day. Like at the moment, I am not operating at maximal capacity and I know exactly where my maximum capacity is from doing a PhD Mm. because at the end you have to work so close to your maximum that you learn exactly where that threshold is. And now I'm like, Oh my God, I'm only working at 60%. I'm not working hard enough. I'm not um, making the most of the opportunities and all of that. I'm like, wait a second. Like that other forty percent of my capacity is going towards getting used to everything being new and adapting to change with all of this change in my life. Yeah, that takes up a huge amount of brain space. Mm. And so of course I'm gonna have less brain space left to do the other things that I would want to do. And so it's just giving myself that permission and that self compassion to not be doing all the things straight away. Yeah. Um, and I still keep catching myself being like oh I could be doing more I think it's yeah it's, it's that perfectionism thing I could be doing more but if I did try and push through it I would break and so I won't do that I'll give myself a chance
0: that's it from my STEM guest this week Gosh, what an interesting conversation about animal behavior and human behavior and how we deal with the ever-changing chapters of our lives. Thank you so much for listening this week. Don't forget to rate and review the show and catch you next week on Silence.